you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, I'll look at this week's news. The seemingly never-ending trade talks between China and the U.S. made what both sides called progress last week in Beijing, and meetings are set to continue this week in Washington. Business interests from both sides have been feeling the pinch of the mutual tariffs, so the pressure is on for leaders to reach an agreement. Analysts who are skeptical that a deal may be reached soon argue that Trump administration hardliners are requiring Beijing to meet an untenable set of demands that would be both economically unviable and would cause the Chinese side to lose face. Anything could happen, but expect either a watered-down compromise that both sides can trumpet as victory or an extension of the March 1 deadline for the upcoming tariff increases. China's trade surplus more than doubled in January, driven by stronger exports as businesses rushed to fill orders before the Lunar New Year holiday at the beginning of February. China's goods exports rose 9%, surprising economists who, in a Bloomberg poll, had predicted a 3% decline. Imports fell slightly, but less than economists had predicted. The timing of the holiday played an important role in boosting exports. Chinese New Year fell earlier in February this year, which meant that more of the pre-holiday rush to fulfill orders fell into January, boosting year-on-year export growth. China's economy grew 6.6% last year amid sluggish domestic and foreign demand, making the slowest annual expansion since 1990. To stimulate the economy, policymakers have carried out several pro-growth policies, including tax cuts, infrastructure projects, and policies to encourage lending to small and private firms, suggesting that U.S. tariffs have started to become a more meaningful drag on exports. The former boss of China Huarong, one of the nation's four largest distressed asset managers, has been formally charged with corruption, bribery, and, wait for it, bigamy. Officials began investigating Lai Xiaomin on suspicion of graft last April. He reportedly had three tons of cash stashed in a home, 
and a bank account under his mother's name worth $40 million. Lai was charged with illegally taking a, quote, huge amount of bribes through his positions as ex-party chief and head of Huarong, and was also charged with living together with a person, quote, as husband and wife, unquote, while still legally married to someone else, the statement said. In June 1967, a giant mushroom cloud rose over the desert in western China's Xinjiang region, marking the successful development of China's first hydrogen bomb. At the time, few knew the name of Yu Min, one of the major contributors to the development of China's hydrogen bomb. Yu died last month in Beijing at the age of 93. In the 1980s, he continued to study the second generation of nuclear weapons and neutron bombs with other researchers, contributing to the development of China's neutron bomb, the ability to miniaturize nuclear bombs and other nuclear weapons systems. Because of the top-secret nature of nuclear research, Yu remained anonymous for more than 30 years until 1998, when files were declassified. In 1999, he was given a merit award for his contribution to China's nuclear and space programs, and in 2015, he won the country's highest National Science and Technology Award. China's ride-hailing leader Didi Chuxing announced mass layoffs in a meeting at the company's Beijing headquarters Friday morning. The company will lay off roughly 2,000 staffers, which will impact 15% of the company's total corporate workforce. Last week, it was reported that Didi lost nearly $2 billion for 2018 and raked in $150 million on driver subsidies. How do you say I'm sorry when a top executive in one of your major global markets gets busted for spying? That's the question confronting embattled telecom equipment maker Huawei, whose sales director in Poland was arrested last month and charged with spying in the country where he worked. The arrest occurred as Huawei was already coming under global scrutiny from a growing number of Western countries worried about its potential ties with Beijing that could be used for spying. Huawei has repeatedly denied any such ties and quickly fired the executive. Now the company says it is ready to work with Warsaw on steps it might take to restore trust between the two sides. The chief security officer for Huawei says the company is working with Warsaw to assuage fears that it has about the firm building a 5G network for the country. Warsaw is also reportedly considering excluding Huawei from bidding for work on the country's new 5G networks. Customs officers in Hong Kong said they seized 90 pounds of illegal rhino horns worth $1 million. It's the latest seizure in Hong Kong's push to stop the rising trafficking of endangered species through its territory. Hong Kong is a major hub for illegal wildlife trafficking due to its proximity to major markets for endangered species products and fairly relaxed enforcement. But that enforcement has been picking up. Last month, Hong Kong Customs confiscated over a thousand ivory tusks and a record volume of pangolin scales when it busted a major smuggling ring from Africa. The rhino horn traffickers were en route to Vietnam from Johannesburg, South Africa. Beijing sparked controversy in October when it announced that it would legalize the use of tiger and rhinoceros parts for scientific and medical purposes. It shelved the plan in response to public outcry over its potential harm to endangered species. 
At least 50 people are believed to have been struck with viral diarrhea at a luxury resort in China's northeastern city of Harbin over the Lunar New Year holiday. A guest viral post on Weibo criticized Club Med food hygiene practices and claimed guests had fallen ill while on a package deal where the club provided all food, drinks, and refreshments. Club Med issued a statement saying eight guests had been diagnosed with norovirus, the most common cause of gastroenteritis, and that 45 had reported symptoms. Symptoms. The initial Weibo poster alleged a far higher number of guests, around 100, had fallen sick and posted a picture showing comments in an active WeChat thread. The resort said it was undergoing, quote, epidemic control operations, close quote, and would refer guests to a different resort. It also said it would compensate guests who contracted norovirus and would cover any medical expenses they incurred up to two days after leaving the resort. Thanks, Ada. Let's turn now, as we do each week, to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors for a deeper dive into some of the week's news. First up this week is Doug Young, managing editor of Caixin Global. Doug, fun topic this time, French wine in China. Uh, what's happening with this, uh, the wine scene in China, and, and why is French wine in the news right now? You know, China for years has just been devouring or chugging down, whatever you want to say, uh, a lot more wine, uh, and especially imported wine. Uh, but just wine in general. China, tra- China traditionally was not a wine-drinking culture. They had their own alcohol, but not not grape wine in the sense that uh, we have in the West. And, you know, wine has sort of an upscale, yuppie type of image, you know, and it tastes okay, too. That's always important. Uh, and so China's sort of been developing this taste for wine, I think partly for the image thing, you know, they this aspiring middle class who want to be seen as sort of enjoying the nicer things in life. And then as well as, as uh, you know, it tastes okay. It's a nice sort of a lighter alcoholic beverage that you can drink with meals rather than going for the hardcore Chinese stuff, which is what, which is what they traditionally drank. Anyhow, the story is, is uh, Chinese wine imports and Chinese wine consumption in, in general were growing for years. And then in the last few days, the big French Wine Exporters Association came out with numbers that showed uh, France's exports to China actually fell 14%, which is a pretty big drop in 2018. So uh, has the bubble burst, I guess, is what, what people are starting to ask. So it's not actually that Chinese people are drinking less wine, per se. They're just drinking less French wine. Is that right? That's what it turns out the story is. The story isn't wine consumption is going down and actually... Uh, I did a little bit of looking, and, and it seems like wine consumption, it's not growing super fast, but it's growing about 5 6% a year. Uh, but yes, what's happening is French wine is is sort of falling. I wouldn't say it's falling out of favor, but it's it's getting crowded out by, you know, all these other sort of nice alternatives. Uh, you have Australian wines, you have Spanish wines, Chilean wines, Napa Valley wines from the U.S., you know, there are a lot of other alternatives, and, and France was really, you know, to its credit, was one of the earliest imports to come to China to try and develop the local market. But these other countries have sort of come in on their heels. And if you look at, at comparable wines, you know, at a, a comparable quality level, often you pay a premium just for the French one versus, say, an Australian or a Chilean wine. And so... Apparently, not only are the consumers saying, hmm, maybe we don't need the French wine, but the importers are actually saying, hmm, I can import this Chilean wine that 
is a comparable quality to a French wine for 30% less, and maybe I can sell it for 20% more, you know, i.e. They, they basically can make some more profit because they're, say, importing it for $10 a bottle, whereas the same French wine would cost 15 and then they turn around and sell it for 15 whereas the French would have sold for 17 You know, they're getting a, fi- a thicker, you know, fatter margin. Um, so I think you're seeing both consumers and probably the importers, you know, wising up to the fact that, you know, there's there's other kids on the block besides the French. So, so this is mainly a price sensitivity issue, apparently. But uh, is there also some element of maturation on the part of the Chinese wine aficionado? I mean, are they becoming more discerning, able to form their own opinions about different varietals and different regions and all that? Or do we not have data that's granular enough to indicate one way or another? We have those the big data points, but uh, you know, based on talking to some of the analysts, I think it's exactly what you're saying. You know, if I serve a Chilean wine at at my dinner with my guests, say I'm Chinese, uh, you know, maybe ten years ago they would have sniffed and said, "Why are you serving me this wine from Chile?" You know, whatever. Uh, so in that sense, I think now those same guests would say, "Oh, Chilean wine." You know, it sounds sort of exotic and it's gained a bit of a reputation. So it's no longer, you know, it wouldn't be a, a diss in your, your dinner guest to serve a Chilean wine versus a French one. So I think that's, you're right. I think there's uh, some maturation in that sense. And and then, like you said, uh, you know, price is always an issue with everybody. Uh, if you can get almost the same product with almost the same reputation and, and all this and that uh, for a lower price, of course, you're going to go for the lower price. Well, Doug, santé, as they say in France. Cheers. Cheers, Kaiser. Next up is David Curtin with an electrifying topic, electric power. Uh, David, why is China's grid in the news? Well, Kaiser, um, we kind of take it for granted, but uh, China's economic transformation couldn't have happened without one thing, power. Uh, That's whether you're running a steel mill in uh, the north of the country or whether you're working in finance in Shenzhen, everything needs power. The other thing we tend to take for granted is that getting power from power plants to uh, users uh, is going to be a simple thing. It's really not. In China, there's a, there's a giant company called State Grid Corp of China, which is largely responsible for most of the transmission across China. The government's tried to reform it, but it's not really got very far. It continues to be a very opaque organization. And there's still a lot of mysteries around how much it buys from power plants, at what price it buys from power plants, and then at what price it's selling those that energy on to consumers. What's happening now is that the government is uh, undertaking a huge audit of the companies under the state grid to try and work out exactly what's going on there, whether it's padding up too much of a markup, and whether prices should be lower for consumers. Okay, so there's this audit, which I imagine has to be pretty daunting and, and uh, very complex undertaking. Uh, how is this going to be done and, and what makes it so difficult? Well, it's a really thorny issue because State Grid Corp of China uh, is huge and it still has a, it's still one of those hangovers from uh, the state-led sector days that China is now trying to move away from in some ways. In the energy sector, there are various different interests at play. You have provinces that develop power plants there, and they want to create their own grids that have cheaper power. So if you invested, for example, in, I don't know, Yunnan province, it's cheaper to be in Yunnan province and neighboring Zhejiang province. 
So what has happened is you have all these different bosses, and none of them quite has authority over the state grid, which is kind of resisted to a certain degree central control. What this audit does is allows the government to have a much clearer picture of what's going on across the country. And you know, for a country of China's size, you'd think it would have a strong grip on that already. We tend to think of China as being really centralized, but actually things are very opaque, and this is a step in a direction of clearing things up. Uh, very briefly, there are changes afoot,、uh, and there are some powerful interests involved here. Who are the likely winners and losers in this? Well, the winners are likely to be end users, which is you know you running your steel mill somewhere, or even just the city trying to get electricity to, you know to to fuel homes. At the moment, like I say, it's very hard for、uh, anyone to know quite why they're paying the prices they are. But this is part of a move towards that. So the winner is the overall economy at a time when it's becoming increasingly difficult for a lot of companies in the country for various other economic reasons. But another major winner is renewables. So at the moment,、um, if you have a hydropower dam in Yunnan or Sichuan province, or you have a great big、uh, solar farm in Xinjiang. That is not necessarily creating electricity for the population clusters in the east of the country for all sorts of reasons. But what this audit will help to do is to bring a lot more clarity to the system of how electricity is transmitted, so that hopefully China can move towards a stage where you can have a lot of those great renewable energy that is pushing in the west of the country being transmitted to the east of the country, which means you can cut out all of that coal power or a lot of that coal power that is causing so much problems for the environment. Well, David, thanks very much、uh, for catching us up on this important topic, and I look forward to talking to you again very soon. Thanks, Geiser. You're welcome. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by Sub China, and is produced by Geiser Guo and Tanner Brown, with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global, and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the other shows about contemporary China in the expanding Sinica network, and be sure to follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Subscribe to our newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.